0: all right john chapter 16 john chapter number 16 and we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 33 and we will consider the question of our lord simply entitled do ye now believe do you now believe i want to draw our attention as we begin, just to verses 29 through 31, we'll read these verses and then we'll just give some statements as we begin. We get in there in verse 29, it says, His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee? By this we believe that thou camest forth. From God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Notice that question that Jesus asked in verse 31. His response to their statement of We believe, he responds with the question, Do ye now believe? We need to dispel some things before we begin. We need to understand that our Lord was not calling their faith into question. In other words, he was not saying, are you really saved? He wasn't denying that they had faith, and he was not even despising the smallness of their faith. But he is doing something. His question is a bit of a reproof. He's reproving them in a manner because they are speaking as if they could find security, confidence, and boasting in their own statement of belief. In other words, the disciples were speaking as if their strength was so strong that it could and it would never be moved. It would be much like you and I saying today, there is nothing that could move me from my faith in the Lord. No amount of persecution, no amount of hatred, no amount of affliction, no amount of suffering. My faith could not be moved. So the Lord is reproving them for that self confident faith. It's as if Christ is telling them, You believe me now. You believe me as I'm seated here with you. But what are you going to do later? And some might say, how are you getting all that from this particular text? Because this is what Jesus has been talking about. And again, why exposition of Scripture is so important. This is not an isolated thought. Remember, the Lord's been dealing with them about their security and about the affliction that was coming. He's already taught them about the comforter who would come, the Holy Spirit. So he's, this question comes up in that same discourse that Jesus is having with them. This question of do you now believe must be taken within the entire context of what we've read in John 16. And for that matter, everything we've read from John chapter 1 all the way to John chapter 15. This is not an isolated incident. And that's why it's so important. So this goes along with what Jesus has already said. Remember, he's told them, it is expedient for you that I go away. But if I go away, I will not leave you alone. I will send a comforter. And we know that that comforter would be the Holy Spirit of God. So John 16 is still dealing with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it's becoming more and more real now. Jesus is moving closer and closer to when he will voluntarily allow himself to be taken in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will go and will be put before a, a, a false trial. He'll be found guilty of blasphemy, although he was not guilty of any sin. He will be sentenced to death. He will go to a cross. He will bleed. He will die upon that cross. His body will be removed. he will be placed into a tomb, and three days later, he will raise again from the grave just as he said he would. But remember, we're looking at this from the perspective of the disciples. When Jesus asked this question, it's not so much do you now believe just for this present moment, but it is accurate to say, will you believe when what happens happens? Belief is something that is easy for us to stand on when it's not being tested. Our belief as Christians today is easy when it's not being tested. It's when our faith is tested that our belief really shines. Are we really believing the truths in which we heard? Uh, we've already talked about a little bit about this this morning. It's possible for you and I to amen every word that's being said today. I believe that. I believe that. To acknowledge those six truths that we affirmed in our, our, our first exposition this morning there from 1 Thessalonians. We can say we all agree on those things. But what happens when it's tested? What happens when your faith is put to the fire? That's what Jesus has in mind. Now, of course, the Lord being all-knowing, He knows that one of them is going to betray Him. He already knows that's already taken place. He already knows about Peter's denial before Peter even is confronted with it. He already knows that as the cross gets closer and closer, when they actually take Him, all of His disciples who are saying, we believe we cannot be moved are going to scatter. Jesus knows all this. He knows it's going to happen, and even after he dies, there will be people who will even express some doubt about the reality of who Jesus was. It's hard to fathom. Again, we've spoken a lot today about how strong we think we are until the persecution comes or until the the challenge to our faith comes. And I think that's a recurring theme today that the Lord's kind of bringing to our mind is this reality of uh, we are, we, our, our faith, in order to be real, has to be put to the fire. Faith that's never put to the fire, is it real faith? Is it real belief? Or are we believing in a concept? Are we believing in an idea, in a principle? And maybe even go as far as to say, are we are believing in a Lord, but what happens when the faith gets tested? Now, it's interesting what they say, and we're going to kind of fill in the gaps here, because what Jesus said around these verses is vitally important as well. So let's go back to verse 25. And I want you to notice a promise here that Christ makes. In verse 25, and this is the first heading if you want to follow along with some form of an outline, Christ promises or promise to show the Father plainly. Now notice what he says here. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. The expression these things refers to everything, the entire body of work that Christ had taught. Everything he had spoken to his disciples is in play here. We, we read and we, we've, we've studied through this book for I don't know how long now, but you try to take all of that in. And what Jesus is telling them is he's been speaking to them in Proverbs or kind of veiled sayings. But what he's telling them is, I will show you playing with the Father. He's telling them that the things I've spoken to you in Proverbs and in these kind of veiled teachings... At one time, at one day, I'm going to tell you very plainly, it's like removing the veil from something that's been partially hidden. I'm going to show you all of the truths, and you're going to understand. Now, we know from what we've studied that that understanding is going to be connected with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you can't separate the indwelling Holy Spirit from what Jesus is saying. He's telling them that when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells, you are going to know plainly the things of the Father. Now, you and I take these things for granted because we've, we've been saved and as long as we've been converted, we've known the principles because the Spirit's been dwelling in us. As a matter of fact, we don't often talk a lot about that, that when we're converted, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. He's dwelling within us. And the understanding that we have and the things that why we could even understand today is because the Holy Spirit. This particular time that Jesus is talking about these things, they were not still fully comprehending everything he's been talking about. Now, we do remember that Jesus had said back in John chapter number 7, if you'd like to turn there in verses 16 through 17, he had spoken about that those who know him or those who believe will have a clarity or an understanding of the doctrine of the Father. In John 7, verses 16 through 17, now again, we're going back chapters, so you've got to remember we've come a long way since John 7. There's a lot of things Jesus has told them. But here's what he said back in John 7, verse 16, and he's speaking, he's speaking to the, the Jews who were marveling at what Jesus is saying. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him. The same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Summary here, Jesus is saying back in in chapter 7 that those who know the doctrine of God, those who know the doctrine of the Father, those are the believers. Those are the ones that are in God. There's clarity brought to them. Now, what is the purpose in what Jesus has been teaching? Remember, Jesus is is giving the the coming of his his redemptive work, the, the power of the gospel we've spoken about. He's telling them all these things and he's beginning to reveal to them why he came. You know, many, when Jesus was walking in human form on this earth, never ceasing to be God, many just assumed that Jesus was just a good example to follow. He was kind to people. He healed people that were sick. He provided food for people that were hungry. And sadly today, there are people that look at Jesus the exact same way. They say Jesus is a great example of what a Christian ought to be. And in some regards, that might be true. But remember, Jesus didn't come just to give us an example of how to live a good believer Christian life. He's speaking about the truths of the gospel. He's speaking about the truths of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When he begins to speak about seeing things plainly, he's speaking about the glory of the Father and the wisdom of the Father being revealed in Christ. I know the Father's will and the Father's plan through Christ. I know the mind of God through Christ. You can't separate the two. That's why Jesus made so many comparisons to I and my Father are one. They were not thinking differently. When Jesus here in John 16 says, I will show you plainly the Father, he was demonstrating and declaring to them that through me, through what I'm getting ready to do, the Father and him and his will will be plainly and clearly seen. And you will see it in a way that you haven't seen to this point. The Holy Spirit, as He comes and would replace Jesus as their presence, we know that the Holy Spirit was poured out after the ascension of Christ. The Holy Spirit, you read the book of Acts, for example, and you begin to find out that the Holy Spirit was the one doing the instruction. The Holy Spirit was the one that was teaching them about the mysteries and the secrets of salvation, teaching them about the church, what the church should look like, how the church should function. And those things were to be understood and taken until the end of the world. It's the very things in which you and I today understand and base our belief on. Through Jesus Christ, the will of God the Father has been revealed, and we carry on through the power of the Holy Spirit, teaching us and giving us instruction as to the will of the Father. So Christ promised that you will see plainly, not in Proverbs anymore, not in things that are veiled, but you'll see plainly. Number two, in verses 26 through 28, Christ declared... The Father's love has been made known. Christ declared that the Father's love has been made known. Look at verse 26. At that day, that's the time cometh in verse 25, ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. Now, notice what he says. I I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you. Watch the connection because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. Now let's kind of put this in a package we can kind of see this. The Lord's telling them, after I'm crucified, after I'm risen, after I am ascended back to the Father, The Holy Spirit comes unto you, will give you a clear understanding of my work. And you're going to pray to the Father in my name. And as you pray to the Father in my name through the Holy Spirit, the Father will hear you. Why will the Father hear you? Because I will be making intercession for you. I will stand for you and the reason I'm going to do that is because the Father Himself loves you. That's why I'm going to do it. You see, Christ came because God loves His own. John 3.16 He loves us with an everlasting, unbreakable, remarkable love we've been talking about over the last few Sundays because of Christ. The father loves you because of his son. And I would dare say that's the only reason he loves you. Is because of his son. Now that doesn't feel good to our ego. Matter of fact, it kind of hurts. Well, how could Christ not love me? Because you're unlovable. But in His Son, He loves you. Now that's great, that's great news. Because if you're in Christ, He loves you. I don't ever have to wake up and say, I wonder if God loves me today. Because God the Father can do nothing less than love His Son. And if He must love His Son, He will love those that are in His Son in Christ. These promises that we hear are great promises. But what happens to us? Because we're in Christ, we, as a result, love him back. That's why verses here in his love, not that we loved him first, but that he loved us. We respond in love because he loved us first. We love Christ. So the very sum of everything we do, the the idea behind our worship The reason that we can pray to the Father, the reason we've prayed today, we pray in the name of the Son. Christ is the mediator. There should never be prayer that leaves out Jesus Christ. When you start to pray, you you need to invoke the name of Christ because that is your access. You're You're not getting to God the Father unless it's through the Son. Now we, we amen these things, but the disciples are hearing this for the first time and they're saying, what? See, we take where we live in our generation and it's sometimes it's so hard for us to understand where the disciples were seated at at this moment. These are truths we cherish. They're truths that are dear unto us, but yet the disciples are hearing some of these things for the very first time. But the very sum of our worship is to have a Father, God the Father, who hears us. Low down, no good, depraved, corrupt, filled with sin. God the Father hears us because of His Son and His perfect righteousness. The fact that we could even pray today and God hears us ought to put us on our face before God. But remember, the only reason God the Father is listening to you is because he's listening to his son. Not because you're a good Christian that's holier than the rest of us. It's only through Christ. So you have Christ declaring this truth. He's declaring the Father's love has being made known to them. Now, it's interesting because he goes on and he says in verse 20, 27, for the father himself loved you because you have loved me and believe that I came out from God. I came forth from the father. Now notice this, and am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the father. Notice the phrases, I came, I leave, and I go to. Go to, I leave, I came. This is the very central facts of the purpose of redemption. It tells us what Jesus did. I came forth from the Father. Okay, so what does that tell us about Jesus? That tells us that he is indeed God. I came forth from the Father. That also tells us something about Jesus, that he preexisted. When he came forth from the Father, he didn't begin to exist he had already existed. But yet when we see the picture in the scriptures of Jesus when he came, how did he come? He came as a baby. But when Jesus declares, I came forth from the Father, he's declaring very clearly, I came forth as God. I pre-existed. But it also declares why he's coming. We remember back in John 14, if we want to turn there, John 14, verses 8 through 14. This is that familiar passage that we find Jesus declaring, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Again, we hear passages, and if this is familiar to you, we're like, yes, I understand this. But notice what he said. This makes, this makes Philip's question mean even more now when we see it in John 16. What do you ask in verse 8 of John 14. Philip saith unto him, Lord, what's his question? Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says, this is where I came from. Again, these statements, if you try to just, if you just try to take this and preach a message by just taking these phrases, none of this makes much sense. But when it's taken as a whole, you begin to understand, wow, this is all starting to build and it all starts to make sense. Even way back then, Philip's saying, Lord, show us the Father. He's sitting in front of Jesus and doesn't understand that when I see you, Lord, I do see the Father. He didn't even fully get it yet. And that's what led Jesus to say, how long, Philip, I've been with you and you still don't know these things The second phrase there back in our text in John 16, he says, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. I am come into the world. Okay, that Jesus, when he came, he came, and that's a reference to his incarnation. Why did Jesus take on a robe of human flesh? What's the purpose? His purpose was to fulfill the representative work as the second Adam. In other words, he came to become sin. He who knew no sin to die in place of wicked, vile sinners, you and me. That's why he, that's why he came. He's fulfilling the Father's purpose. I came into the world, took on that robe of human flesh, representing Man. All the way back in John 1, you don't have to turn there, John 1, verse 14, we remember, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And now we get to the place where he's now getting closer to. I leave the world and go to the father. I leave the world and go to the father. The Lord Jesus, we know after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after seen by a number of witnesses, ascended and was exalted and is seated right back at the right hand of the Father where he came from as mediator. All of these things, Jesus, as he teaches his disciples, is based upon the declaration of the Father's love. Again, a declaration that you and I to this day, and I'm not sure we will ever fully understand until maybe we get the glory of what it really means to be loved by God. Because I think if we really understood what it is to truly be loved by God, it would, it would radically, it would radically change us. When you start throwing the love of God around as if something that it was no problem, you begin to water it down. You begin to lessen the reality of what it means. When you throw the love of God around as something that's just a a well-known fact, listen, the only reason God the Father loves us is because he loves his son. The only reason he loves you is because he loves Christ. Don't ever think so highly of yourself that apart from Christ, that God loves you. Now that's a hard truth for a lot of people to hear. It's not us he loves It's his son. So we see that Jesus is saying these things and that leads us to where we started. Jesus has already said back in verse 25, the day is coming, the time's coming, I won't speak to you in Proverbs. And notice it's interesting. His disciples said unto him, verse 29, lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no Proverbs. They are saying the exact same thing Jesus said. He said the time's coming, it will happen. They say, hey, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, go ahead and do that now. Just go ahead and speak to us. We don't need the Proverbs anymore. Just speak plainly to us now. We got it. It's a demonstration of the self-confidence of trusting in our own standing of faith. It's a a little bit, for lack of a better word, and maybe this isn't the right word, it's a little bit of... Christian arrogance. Lord, I know you said the time's coming. And by the way, the time hadn't come yet. Jesus said the day is coming. The day that was coming to when he, they could understand it would be when? When the Holy Spirit came upon them. They think we got it now. And notice it gets a little bit more confident. Confident. Notice the emphasis on the word, now are we sure? Okay, sure, we're sure that thou knowest all things. Now, are they right in Jesus' assessment of Jesus? Absolutely. Lord, we know you know all things. And needest not that any man should ask thee. In other words, Lord, you don't need anything of us. You don't need anything from us. We know you know all things. And here's what they declare. This is their, the proclamation and the confession of the apostles in verses 29 and 30. They declare, but by this, we believe that thou camest forth from God. Now, he just said that in verse 28, I came forth from the father. So when the Lord says, the Father loves you because you love me and I believe that I came from the Father, I leave this world, I'm going to my Father, the disciples replied, now we understand it. They are declaring in their own confidence, this is so clear to us now, it is no longer a mystery. Let me ask you the question, then why when Jesus was taken and why when he went to the cross, if they knew it all and they knew the mystery, then why did they scatter? because they really didn't know as much as they thought they knew. Folks, there's a danger. There's a danger in thinking, and again, maybe this is for another time, that we spiritually know it all. There are believers who are unteachable. There are people who say, when you try to tell them anything about the things of God, they say, I already know that. I know that, I've, I've, been, I've grown up, and, and the, excuse is all, the the reason is always this. I grew up in church. I've been in church since I was a newborn. But let me just tell you, that doesn't prove anything, and that doesn't make you impressive. That doesn't mean you know everything. And by the way, we have the Holy Spirit, but we still don't know Everything. There are still mysteries of God that you can go home today and you can beg the Holy Spirit to try to show you and and give you the mystery, and you will not get an answer. In other words, if you go home today and you get the Scriptures out and you beg the Holy Spirit, say, through the Holy Spirit, I'm invoking the name of Jesus Christ. Take this to the Father. Tell me the day of Jesus Christ's return. You will not get an answer. Because that great mystery that Jesus himself even said, I don't even know the date. I told you to chew on that last week. Jesus himself says, I don't even know the date of my own return. What a mystery. So, having the Holy Spirit doesn't mean we're going to know everything. Yet, here the disciples, prior to the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling them, proclaim and confess we understand. In their mind, the matter is settled. But you know what? This isn't the first time they had said this. Go back to John 6 and look at verses 67 through 69. John 6, verses 67 through 69. Again, now we're going back a little bit further. This has been a pattern with the disciples. Always jumping to conclusions, saying, we got it, Lord. John 6, verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And here's that word again. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? You know, we blow through scripture so fast Have you ever stopped and considered what he just said? It would be like him standing here saying, one of you is a devil. One of you. Not me. One of you is a devil. And you're sitting here right with me. And if you think the other 11, I mean, it's almost like it's just like... He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the 12. It's interesting that John's account in John 6, it doesn't even deal with it. It's almost as if the disciples were not even affected by the fact that Jesus just said, one of us is a devil. Now other gospel accounts, and it does talk about it later, but right here, it just leaves it. But you see that word again. We believe, we're sure, so in John 6, the disciples were sure they understood the things of the Lord. John 16, they're saying the same thing. Lord, we've pl- we got it now. We have it down. Yet this proclamation, this confession of their faith made by the disciples leads Jesus in verses 31 and 32 back in our text. John 16 leads Christ to challenge their faith. And he gives them a sad and solemn prediction. Jesus answered them, do ye now believe? Now, we dispelled all that this wasn't at the beginning. Jesus is not saying you don't have any faith at all. But what he is challenging them with is that though you profess to believe, taking everything we've learned up to this point point. This trying time that is coming upon them when your faith is going to be challenged, he tells them that you are going to waver. Now, I've talked about unteachable people, but when God tells you that you're going to do something, it's going to happen. Just like when he said, Judas Iscariot will betray me. He wasn't taking a guess. He wasn't saying, I think he's the one. He said he would. Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord at exactly the moment Judas Iscariot was supposed to. In this verse, the very next verse, after Jesus says, Do you now believe he continues his thought. Verse 32, behold. The word behold means to draw their attention. He's, this is a strong word. He says, The hour cometh, yea, is now come. What he's meaning, we're at the doorstep of it. Because within hours, Jesus is going to be taken. We're, we're right there that ye shall be scattered. That's not, I think that's what's going to happen by Jesus. That's saying, This trying that you're so sure of, this faith that you're standing so self confidence in, when it comes, I already know what's going to happen. You're going to scatter. And by the way, this is not Jesus just knowing what they're going to do. He knows their heart. Remember, they'd already professed to him, Lord, you know all things. And yet we believe we're sure. And he says, here's one thing I'm sure of. You're so self-confident, but when all this comes, you're not even going to stand with me. Now, notice he doesn't point out the apostle Peter like you and I are so prone to do. Poor Peter is the one that always gets accused of being the forsaker. He wasn't the only one. Most all took off. The only ones we know that were at the cross was Jesus' mother and John. He challenges them. He knows Peter is going to deny him. He knows others are going to forsake him. As a matter of fact, they are going to so forsake him. And I'm going to show you something this morning that honestly, it it, it kind kind of filled in some gaps in my own thinking as to what was taking place. But they were so scattered that they went back to their old vocations. Peter went back to being a fisherman. After Jesus was gone, it is almost like we have forgotten everything we knew. If you go to John 21, this is it, it, it's it's if you and we're going to get to this but when we when we get approaching this chapter towards the end of this particular series this is when Jesus makes that appearance by the sea. And if you'll notice there in verse number 3 and verses 1 and 2, it talks about they were together, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael, uh, the sons of Zebedee, two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go with fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. They went forth and sent into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. Now, we look at this and we think about what's the big deal? They, they went fishing. The problem is, is Jesus had called them from being fishers, fishermen to being fishers of men. When Jesus left and he died, he didn't say, go back to your old life. They went back to what they had known. Now, Jesus is not here bodily with us now. And yes, we understand that the the, the power, the coming of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of Pentecost is coming. But Jesus makes this appearance and they had gone back to what they knew before. When Peter makes that statement, I go fishing, he's talking about returning back to his old profession, which is fascinating because if you go down later in this chapter in verse 15, so when they had dined, remember Jesus prepared the, he he prepared, he says, bring the fish in, he prepares and cooks for them. He says, come and dine in verse number 12. And Jesus challenges Peter in verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now here's what gets me. Who are the these? Who's he t- what's he talking about? Is he talking about the disciples? Is he, because we're told that all that's there is Jesus and this handful of disciples that are standing there. Do you love me more than these? Peter, he saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Here, what we we see, Jesus is, is, is trying to get Peter to attend to the real task at hand. He's he's referencing and speaking even of the things in which Peter has now gone back to. What did Peter go back to when he went back to his his vocation? He went back to being a fisherman. He He went back to the sea. He went back to the boats. He went back to taking care of his nets. And Jesus says, do you love me more than these things that you've gone back to? Remember, the pressure has not yet come. Jesus continues that in verse number. Uh, we're still in, in John twenty-one in verse eighteen. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whether thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whether thou wouldest not. Now, what in the world is what is Jesus telling Peter? We get the answer. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. Peter is announced by the Lord, Peter, my will for you is to die for me. Not to be a fisherman, mending your nets, being on the sea and caring for boats. Imagine being told by the Lord, this is I'm talking about your death. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turned about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. That's John, whom also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth me? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the disciples should not die. Yet Jesus said unto him, he shall not die, but if, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? This is the disciple which testified of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Everything there is to know about the Lord is not just found in front of us at this very moment. He predicted you're going to scatter. I showed, I've shown you how he, even you're going to scatter and you're going to go back to your old profession as if all the things we talked about never even happened. Why did Jesus speak these things? Back in verse 32 of John 16. Behold, an hour come, the hour cometh, yea, is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. Again, Jesus isn't saying, here's what I think is going to happen. He's saying, here's how sure and confident you are in your belief. I'm telling you what you're actually going to do. You're going to scatter and you're going to leave me alone. And I love what he says. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus, knowing every one of his disciples is going to forsake him. You're going to leave me alone. You're going to scatter. You're going to go back to your old way. Yet I am not alone. Alone, because the Father is with me. That's why Jesus asked the question Do you now believe? What is the purpose? Why did Jesus speak this way? He is speaking this for their sake. He's preparing them for the heavy hour of tribulation and struggle and affliction that's going to come. Jesus' purpose is very clear. It was to humble them and to destroy any ounce of self-confidence that they had left. And folks, today, if you are trusting in anything in your life and your own self-confidence, Jesus needs to shake that out of every single one of us because there is no confidence in ourselves. And again, your greatest enemy is your own self. My greatest enemy is my own self. Lord, I got it. Lord, I can take care of it. We make decisions in our life and we don't even consult God about it. We think we know what's best for us. Or we put God into a place where we say, God's answering me and he's answering what I want instead of what God really is saying. And how many times we found ourselves telling the Lord, Lord, I believe you. Yes, I believe you. I got it. Lord, I don't need to hear another message. I don't need to read that scripture again. I understand it. We're all guilty of this. Even if you do a daily scripture reading like we all ought to do, there are times I read it and I blow right through it and I say, I've read this a hundred times. I need to stop because I don't know as much as I think I know. We think that we're God's gift to theology. I have the answer for everything. Give me a definition. Give me a term. I know what it means. And yet, God says, yes, it's easy to believe when there's no pressure. It's easy to believe when you're not scattered. It's easy to believe with the shepherd with you. But he says, every man will go to his own. It's an interesting phrase. It has the tone of going to his own shelter or his own hiding place. What that means is, is when this persecution comes, what you're going to do is you're going to run for your own safety. We talked about this this morning and kind of, again, it's, it's kind of one of those situations where, you know, I could be trusted if an emergency happens. You don't really know what you'll do until it happens. Everybody's really brave until the affliction comes. Jesus is reminding them that when all this comes, You're going to run for your own shelter. You're going to run for your own hiding place. But the only place, the only shelter, the only assurance you have is in what I'm about to do. Folks, today, your only assurance and your only hope is what Christ has done. Your hope is not found in anything that you own. Your hope is not in your job. Your hope is not in your church. Your hope's not in your pastor. Your hope's not in your spouse, your children, whatever it is. It's easy for us to say we believe until it comes. But the reality is, and Jesus is reminding them by telling them that I'm the father is with me. Notice what he says in verse 33 that closes out this chapter. These things I have spoken unto you that in me, you might have peace. In the world, ye shall have tribulation. Another promise of God, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In all of this, Jesus gives a comforting assurance of peace. Notice the reason. All of these things I've spoken unto you that in me, you might circle that, in me, you might have peace. How does a believer in this world today stay at peace with everything going on around us? In Christ. Folks, we are, this is, I'm, 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 vocabulary is failing me this morning, but we are the, the jitteriest bunch of Christians. We are worried about everything. We, every news story, every news flash, everything that happens, we're just jittery, we're undone, we're anxious. Your peace is in Christ. Tribulation is going to come. It's going to get worse. The afflictions are going to come. The sufferings going to come. Jesus is telling his disciples, it's happening. You think you understand, but you don't. But if you will listen to my words, in me, you will have peace. Tie it all together. How am I supposed to have peace in Christ if he's going away? Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen, and by the way, this doesn't mean you just sit and just hope God takes away the anxiety. Can I I give you just a little piece of pastoral counsel? You have to do some things yourself. Everybody just sits there and says, God, feed me. God, help me. God, give me. Do things that encourage that. When you're reading all the things to be worried about on the computer and on the internet, number one, get off of it. Half or more of what you're reading is doing nothing more but stirring up fear and anxiety in you. And you're not thinking about Christ just because it, as you scroll, there's a good Bible verse in the middle of there. Your minds go into all the things that are wrong. What am I going to do when this happens? What am I going to do if this virus in China comes and takes us all? Your peace, no matter what happens, is in Christ. The only peace you're going to have when you step out of this world is Jesus Christ. The preacher's not going to even bring you peace. The doctors aren't going to bring you peace. The nurses aren't going to bring you peace. Only Christ can bring that kind of peace. And we say we know it. The disciples said we believe. But yet, Jesus says, I'm having to tell you all these things and reminding you, have peace in me. Peace is not just something in the mind. Peace, peace is something that affects our entire our conscience, our heart. Why can we have peace in Christ? This ties us all together because we are in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. There is no peace for the unbeliever. Look, if you're not in Christ today, you should be terrified. Absolutely terrified of what's going on in the world. And you should be more terrified about the reality that if you're not in Christ, there is an eternal hell Yes, we're still supposed to preach about hell and the reality where there is burning and weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity for those who refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is the only remedy for sin. You ought to be terrified. You ought to not be able to sleep at night not knowing. But Christ said you don't have to live this way. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not promising you a world with no pain. I'm not promising you a world without suffering, but I am telling you that in me, you will have perfect eternal peace. And yet, this world, we think the answer is if we could just solve world conflict. That's not peace. The peace that he talks about is a piece that he says in the world ye shall have tribulation but be of good cheer. I'm not trying to be silly this morning, but when's the last time you have had been in good cheer even in tribulation and even when you were fearful and even when you were anxious and even when you were suffering? When did you say, you know what the Bible tells me to be of good cheer? This is not a suggestion. People often come to counseling and they want suggestions on how to fix their life. He gives commands. He says, be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. Whatever you're seeing, whatever you're experiencing, I've already defeated. And I've defeated the greatest fear that man has. Death. That's the greatest fear any of us have. Some say, well, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just afraid how it's going to happen. You still fear death. Jesus has taken away all of that. He says, listen, I've overcome the world. I like the fact that he says it before he's actually gone to the cross. Did you notice that? He didn't say "In, in a few short hours, I'll overcome the world. He says, I've already done it. So when we try to make God of our own creation, saying God is waiting on us to do everything and do our part and do our part. No, he's already said, listen, this is not about your part because your part adds nothing. I've already done the work. Every wicked thing you see, every wicked thing you hear, when the world seems like we are, at the, we are standing at the threshold of another world war and all this, understand something. Number one, none of this has taken me by surprise. I've already overcome all this. And you as a believer don't live like the unbeliever who has no hope. Listen, if you work with people that are frightened, give them hope in Christ. Don't feed them by saying, yeah, it's a really fearful time. Tell them about what Christ has done for you. And say, listen. And they say, How how are you so peaceful in this? Well, I'm not peaceful. Right now, even as I stand before you and I say these things, my flesh is raging against this. I want to be afraid of the world. I want to be afraid. I want to worry about everything for for you and my kids and my wife. And I want to do those things. But yet Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Stop worrying about it all. I mean, what greater place can we be than to have your family and your friends in the hands of the Lord? Because I can't protect them the way he can. And you thought, all I got to do is just pray and believe. It's not quite as easy as we think, is it? Oh, I settled that matter a long time ago. I walked out and I believed. I think Jesus would ask the same question. Do you really believe? Is your faith only as good as when you came to that altar and prayed that prayer? Or is your faith really in me? Because that's the only real test of our faith. Peace in Christ is the only true peace. We ought to be encouraged because Christ has overcome the world. But we need to be on guard. Take heed against your own pride because it'll happen. You'll find yourself standing in your own strength or attempting to stand in your own strength probably before this day is over. That's how quick this comes back in. Jesus wanted to do away with that self-confidence. Simple question is, Jesus asked the disciples, question we ask ourselves, do we now believe? Let's finish with our reading from the Valley of Vision. You can remain seated as we read, then we'll stand and be dismissed in prayer. If you're following along in one of these booklets, this is on 200, page 230, Simply entitled Longings After God. He says, My dear Lord, I can but tell thee that thou knowest I long for nothing but thyself, nothing but holiness, nothing but union with thy will. Thou hast given me these desires, and thou alone canst give me the thing desired. My soul longs for communion with thee, for mortification of indwelling corruption, especially spiritual pride. How precious it is to have a tender sense and clear apprehension of the mystery of godliness, of true holiness. What a blessedness to be like thee as much as it is possible for a creature to be like its creator. Lord, give me more of thy likeness. Enlarge my soul to contain fullness of holiness. Engage me to live more for thee. Help me to be less pleased with my spiritual experiences, and when I feel at ease after sweet communings, teach me it is far too little I know and do. Blessed Lord, let me climb up near to thee, and love and long and plead and wrestle with thee, and pant for deliverance from the body of sin, for my heart is wandering and lifeless, and my soul mourns to think it should ever lose sight of its beloved. Wrap my life in divine love. And keep me ever desiring thee, always humble and resigned to thy will, more fixed on thyself that I may be more fitted for doing and suffering. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Our Lord, one of the great truths this morning that has so permeated us today is that you do, in fact, know all things. And Lord, no matter what we profess and what we proclaim today, you know the absolute truth. Lord, we could give an appearance today that we are trusting solely in the work of Christ. We're solely confident in you and what you can do through the Holy Spirit. But Lord, you know the absolute truth. And that truth may in fact be that we are holding on to a little bit of our own self-confidence Maybe a little bit of our own righteousness and our own self-worth. Lord, I pray today that the Holy Spirit might humble that out of us. Lord, that we might come to the realization that there is none great but you, that there is nothing possible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, and even if as we have read in this, uh, this benediction from the Valley of Vision, may this be our desire that we might be more fitted for the afflictions and the trials that are certain to come. Lord, we do want our profession of faith, that we do believe. We want it to be real. We want it to be a faith that will stand when it's tested. But Lord, only you know where we are at this very moment. Lord, thank you for the comfort and the assurance of knowing that there is perfect peace found in your Son. Christ who declared, I have overcome the world. There is victory, certain victory that's already been secured. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we would determine to pray for one another. We may not know the needs of each other specifically, but Lord, we all need you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we deal with people, as we speak to others, as we counsel As we talk to people about their soul, Lord, I pray that it would not be a message of deliverance that we're providing, but it may be the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're declaring. Lord, even in our times of speaking the gospel, we tend to put our own spin on it. May it not be us. May it simply be the declaration and the commandment, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray now as we leave here, That we are leaving in bodily presence, but that, as the Apostle Paul said in our text this morning, that we are in one heart together. And Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for all that you've brought together. May you continue to be glorified in and through us. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here today. And we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. We'd love to have you. Amen. You're dismissed.